and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, and I am super excited to have Gail McRae on our podcast today. I met her in Phoenix at a medical freedom conference, and she is a nurse, and she has an is part of an organization called Stand Firm Now, basically supporting medical freedom. So without further ado, I'm going to let her introduce herself. Gail, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about your history. Yeah, so I was uh, just your regular run-of-the-mill nurse for almost 10 years. Uh, I graduated from a bachelor's program in California in 2011 uh, and started working in acute care in early 2012. Um, I worked all over the hospital in California. I worked in the Bay Area. Uh, I work. I started as an ICU nurse. I ended up spending a lot of time in telemetry, and uh, I would say, I mean, I worked all over the the hospital, but I always knew that my passion was moms and babies, and uh, I ended up going back for a double masters to become a certified nurse practitioner. Uh, as a certified nurse midwife and a women's health nurse practitioner uh, in 2020, actually, right after the start of the pandemic. So I was really uh, deeply immersed in the research during the COVID pandemic, uh, in addition to working in the acute care setting uh, while in grad school. So it was quite uh, the experience seeing uh, both sides of the, uh, of the medical uh, and science communities during such a transformative time um, in healthcare. Uh, I I would say probably uh, there. I had a really very profound experience in my first uh, semester in grad school. Actually, that kind of I I felt uh, led me to become much more critical about uh, what I was seeing around me in the hospital. Um, one of my first assignments as a as a, a grad school student was to give a 15 pa- uh, minute PowerPoint presentation on a controversial topic in the area of women's health and midwifery, and I chose uh, out of hospital births because we all know how controversial that is. Yeah, and uh, I and how dangerous they are. Right. Well, so <laughs> that's why I looked into it. Of course. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I digress. But I just have to say this. Of course, that's what we did for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. But um, now the last 60, 70 years, it, it, you can only have birth in a hospital. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. And that's really why I wanted to look into it was exactly why, because it seemed like there was this taboo on out of hospital births. And I wanted to really understand the literature around that and what that, what the truth really was. And I am a dog with a bone. Um, and I think that that's one of the main reasons why I ended up, um, being so, uh, intently committed to coming forward with the truth about what was happening in the hospital setting, uh, because this is my personality. I, I go deep into the things that I look into. So what I found with out of hospital births really blew me away. Um, I found that in the three letter agencies, the WHO, uh, the um, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, the leading medical organizations for 
for the world, really, uh, they had all of these statements for out-of-hospital birth stating that it was unsafe and that uh, neonatals had higher risks of post-birth seizures and that it was more dangerous for the mother to give birth outside of a hospital. And then I went to uh, Cochrane, uh, which is the most prestigious uh, medical research organization in the world. Uh, they only put out research, I'm sure you know this, but for your, uh, for your, for your, um, for your viewers, they only put out research when they have um, multiple pieces of research from every level of the research pyramid. So it's a very high quality uh, research organization when it comes to actually uh, getting down to more of a, you know, proving your, your facts kind of um, statements. So Cochrane showed that out-of-hospital births actually had slightly better outcomes than in-hospital births. And so that really got me thinking, well, why are these three-letter agencies saying that it's so dangerous to have a baby outside of a hospital? So what I then did is I went to the research that was cited at the bottom of all of these medical recommendations. So on ACOG, there were 48 peer-reviewed studies cited, and I read every single one once, and I couldn't believe what I found. So I went back and I read them again. And I didn't just read the conclusions. I looked at the charts. I looked at the body of the data. And I very clearly could see that in those studies, 46 out of 48 of them showed better outcomes for women who had babies outside of the hospital. The two studies that showed improved outcomes, one of them uh, was a population of, of women who had unplanned out-of-hospital births. So they were uninsured. They had no prenatal care. The population was uh, not applicable. And, and it was a population of women from uh, 1995. So it was outdated research that was not, not applicable population. The one study that showed a correlation had a letter to the editor uh, showing that the evidence and documentation within that paper were inaccurate. So, and that happened with me at the beginning of COVID where I really was able to see that these organizations that were setting up medical recommendations for our practitioners were not giving us evidence-based guidance. And so when I was in the hospital seeing these things that weren't making sense, like, wow, you know, why are they telling patients to go home and do nothing? You know, like when in history have we ever told uh, a patients that there's nothing that they can do? I mean, that right there is a violation of my oath. Right. So I entered into COVID with already an understanding that these organizations were really potentially compromised by monetary gain and other incentives that did not uh, did not root their foundations in moral integrity. So um, it, it gave me uh, it gave me really the mind to start to stand up and discover how we could reorient our understanding of the healthcare systems that were overseeing the American population and ultimately the world's population. Well, and go figure, um, those organizations, you know, they've got financial incentive to have babies in the hospital. Um, so go yeah. figure, they would have a biased opinion. Right. And, you know, I just, I've always, I've said it, I'll say it again and again and again, follow the money. I mean, just follow the money and you'll find out a lot of truths. 
Yeah, and I think that that's really the important thing that most practitioners really don't take time to recognize is that, you know, yes, we're all in it for the right reasons. I mean, most of us come into the field to help people, but the fact of the matter is, is that we're not taking that time to stop and recognize, well, wait a minute, are these agencies giving us, dictating these terms to us about practice and these researchers that are, you know, doing this research, are they in that same, have they taken those oaths to do no harm? Are they, you know, ethically practicing and aware of the implications of, you know, compromising the way that we engage with people? I mean, really, that's um, a huge part of this is like, how can we, how can we think of ourselves as like civilized, intelligent beings when, you know, we can't apply ethics and human decency to people, especially when they're acutely ill in the hospital, you know, in jeopardy of losing their lives. It's, um, it's been a real eye-opener for me in many, many ways going through all of this during COVID. Well, I will say one thing, Gail, that I, I think the hospitals, I've said it before COVID and, and now COVID just exposed them, but I, I think hospitals are evil places. Um, this is nothing personal about the people that work there. I just think they are so driven financially. If, if they accept government money, which most hospitals accept Medicare and Medicaid, um, they are driven by the, the government. The government dictates their rules and it is... It is all financial. It has very little to do with patient care. And, um, you know, when you look at hospitals, they are dangerous places. When you look at COVID, for instance, uh, where did where did the where did the quote COVID deaths happen? They happened at hospitals and no, nobody died with COVID at home. Um, so you got to kind of, you know, that to me is a is a big red flag. You know, and they were following protocols that were given to them by the federal government so they could get reimbursed more based on COVID deaths, based on intubation rates, things like that. So um, what fast forward you were that was in the middle of COVID and you're already kind of questioning things. Fast forward to where you are now with Stand Firm now. I mean, how did that happen? Yeah, well, um, so I came out pretty early uh, with understanding that we needed to stand up and start making changes. You know, I saw in my community very early on that uh, there were a lot of practitioners who could see what was going on and they were just too afraid to stand up and do the right thing. And um, I was blessed. Uh, my husband and I had uh, investments. Uh, we, I was not living paycheck to paycheck and reliant on my job as a nurse. Uh, I had other means to support my family. And so I really came out strong from the get-go, um, you know, speaking out. I went to mm -hmm. town hall meetings and um, I gave presentations in my community and from there it was just like well nobody else is willing to do this so we had community meetings there was I don't know probably between uh, 30 and 100 community members who were fellow practitioners who would meet up every Monday in my town 
and we would talk about what we were seeing and all these things but then when the rubber hit the road they weren't willing to compromise their jobs to potentially give up their income to stand up so um, after uh, so I was I stood up I had my employer process served in uh, September of 2021 um, for violating my rights uh, to for trying to force me to participate in an experiment despite the fact that I had robust natural immunity to COVID uh, so that happened in September they fired me on October 1st and uh, at that point, I, my family and I, we just were like, we're getting out of the state. I want, you know, I, I had a hard time being in California. There were many reasons why. Um, it was the communities. It was, the, we had one of the highest compliance rates in the country in California. And people, I would say there was so much divisiveness um, that you were just, a, like we would, I would be attacked on the streets if I didn't have a mask on. And um yeah. I had a severe mask injury um, in addition to that. So it was really hard for me to engage in, in my community. So we left the state of California and I just started kind of traveling around the country talking about what was going on and trying to bring communities to the awareness that the hospitals are extremely dangerous and that uh, you know, people think that their loved ones died of COVID. They did not. They died of medical protocols, like you had said. Yeah. That is absolutely my experience is that um, this this COVID, COVID is not what killed people. We've been dealing with infectious diseases for generations. And uh, it was definitely protocols that killed our loved ones. Um, the isolation, that's a big one. I mean, I... Um, I want to acknowledge that isolation is what we do to prisoners when they violated their prison sentence. They get isolated and put in the brig in order to give them consequences. And this is what we were doing for people who were terrified of losing their lives in the hospital. So we were adding isolation to terror. I mean, I've got 20 studies that I can give you right now showing that the correlation to isolation and de decreased health and wellness and increased risk of death, I mean, that's just a fact. It's That's a scientific Absolutely. You know, hypothesis. It, 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 it's, it's barbaric. I mean, yes. what we did is barbaric. When you think about not just in acute care settings like in the hospital, but when you think about what we did in long-term care settings, I mean, there were people in their 80s and 90s that were in nursing homes that were not allowed to see their families. Yeah. Um, and they died lonely, not being able to see their families. That is barbaric. I, I believe it's illegal. And yeah. I mean, if it, you know, I mean, let's put ourselves in those people's shoes. And if they came to me and said, Mr. Needham, <clears throat> you're 85 years old, you're in a nursing home. Chances are, if you're in a nursing home, your chance of living more than three or four years anyway is pretty slim, honestly. So, Mr. Needham, um, you can see your kids and grandkids, and they might give you COVID and you might die, or we can isolate you for the next two years. What is your choice? Well, that choice is a no-brainer to me, but they didn't give people choices. No, they didn't. They didn't yeah. give them choices. Bar barbaric. What, what, yeah. what hospitals did, what long-term care settings did, evil. And again, when you trace that back, those settings took money from the federal government. They were told what to do. 
If you don't think this comes from the top down, from the federal government for a way to control people, you talk about terror and fear. That's how governments in the history, in history, have controlled people. Right. Yeah, so it was all that advocacy and um, speaking out that really kind of got um, my attention. You know, I, I got the attention of of a couple of, of other folks in the I mean, I've connected to people all over the country doing activism work and trying to bring awareness to the truth of what's going on around us. But um, I, I have been very inclined to the legal aspect of all of this because from the get-go, it just blown my mind. Like, how can my employer violate state, federal, and international laws and statutes and mandate me to participate in an experiment without informed consent? Like, how could they do that? And so that's always been from the get-go. Like, the legal part of all of this has really kind of... The, I, I felt a draw to that. So I, I ended up connecting with um, multiple teams of legal experts who are doing different litigation tactics. And um, one of them was a uh, non, non-bar lawyer who... Uh, really focuses um, his litigation style on um, pre-trial discovery and how to effectively win your case the moment you file it um, by instead of waiting until trial to present evidence if you go in with all of your evidence already um, submitted in the administrative process it removes the judge's ability to stop your case from moving forward. Because this is what keeps happening. We go to court, we try and litigate, the judge just decides to practice from the bench and throw out the case. It's happened yeah. to me before. The courts are just as corrupt as the hospitals, if not they, they become They become political. The courts, have, the courts should be black and white, but they become political. Yeah. And so um, I got so first I got connected with Prosecute Now, with it, uh, which is an organization um, that Dr. David Martin is involved in. Um, and we worked kind of side by side with them for a little while, gathering evidence. And then uh, the three of us, myself, Dr. Christian Northrup and another lady named Lynette Madsen, we we branched off from Prosecute Now to really focus and hone our attention in on collecting evidence from expert witnesses. So we uh, last year we uh, formed a private-based organization um, that's uh, held in a nonprofit 508C1A uh, to gather expert witness testimony. So that's what Stand Firm Now is. Uh, it's a nonprofit organization and our premise is to gather expert witness testimony because what we discovered is that every time we try to go to court and litigate, uh, the corruption in the courts facilitates the judge throwing out the case. So if we can get thousands of experts, medical experts, anyone who has experience in the acute care setting, uh, scientists, even retired practitioners, that's the one thing we get. You know, again, it comes back to a lot of people just being uncertain and being fearful. You don't have to be currently practicing. Uh, you just have to have had experience and have had the medical training to understand understand the science behind uh, the things that we have uh, created in this in this affidavit which is basically it goes into you know the PCR fraud uh, the suppression of alternative therapies fraud um, the uh, medical what isolation the what yeah what about the treatments what about remdesivir and 
um, intubating patients and not treating them until they get to a certain O2 sat, anything like that? Absolutely. And in addition to that, so we created Christian Northrop, Dr. Christian Northrop got together with a whole team of doctors and they created this document called the COVID commonalities. And it's got basically, I think 23 statements on there that uh, talk specifically about all of the ways that the government and the hospitals uh, lied to and manipulated practitioners into following all of these protocols. So, um, we try to remove everything that was potentially controversial, but to be fair, I mean, if we just talk about what is an affidavit, an affidavit is just a legal statement of facts. Um, it's your own truthful sworn testimony. Uh, we try to create a document that would be that every practitioner would feel comfortable uh, applying to uh, their own truth to. Um, but people could make their own affidavit. We recommend, I, I, I constantly recommend to people, you know, if you don't like something in the document, scratch it out. Uh, we, we, we made this as a platform to offer people uh, the ability to, um, to put their truth out on uh, into the court system. So what this really will do, and I, I actually just recently talked to a retired circuit court judge about this action uh, last month. And he took a look at our case and said that uh, this could be the most profound um, opportunity to engage with the courts because, because of the power of an affidavit. And that's something that a lot of people don't give the time of day. They don't understand what an affidavit is. They don't understand the power. And uh, they don't understand the long reaches of the impacts of these documents. So once we compile thousands of these affidavits, which are just truthful statements by medical experts uh, it will allow us to um, create a, a large database are you there I, I'm here I lost you for just a second kind of okay let me pull something happened on my end we can hear you Okay, so what ended up happening, um, what, what can end up happening is that we will, um, we will end up smashing them in court because they won't have the ability to stop our evidence from hitting the courts. So the affidavit really just compiles thousands of experts saying this is the truth. The judges won't be able to throw that out. In addition to that, our, um, our, our legal counsel can do something really neat with the evidence. Um, we can bond the case. So this is another way to stop them from throwing out our evidence. What, what does that mean? What does bond the case mean? There are so many fun things about the judicial system that I've been learning over the last few years, <laughs> yeah. and bonding of cases is one I'm of them. I'm learning too. <laughs> so, I didn't know this. Uh, it's been confirmed to, be, to me by multiple judges and attorneys. Uh, so when you file a case with the courts, uh, you are asking the judge to hear a potential crime. 
And if the judge decides to hear the case, he takes the social security numbers of the plaintiff and the defendant, and he puts them on a document, and he um, signs a bond asking the Treasury to fund the case. And so this is all, this is all, I mean, again, it was like you were saying earlier, like there's a monetary part to this that the public is not aware of that takes place in a courthouse in order to facilitate uh, legal action. So this is one of those steps that the judges do to open exploration on a case and, and send it to trial. This is one of the things that they do. They bond the case. So there's different strategies and tactics uh, to engage with these courts that we are going to be applying in order to force them to uphold uh, the law. And this is one of them. So what's the timing? When, when do, you know, I, I, one of the problems I have is that our legal system is so slow. Um, and, you know, I, I will say this, that it looks like um, it looks like you and I are on the right side of history. I mean, the cases are coming forward and there is a lot of big wins where employers are losing um, their mandate um, lawsuits. So I, I'm, I'm optimistic. But what are you thinking as far as time frame? Do you have any idea? Well, we were hoping to submit this evidence by the end of this year. And I don't think that's going to happen. Um, and again, it comes back to just wanting to have more evidence when we submit. Uh, I didn't realize when I started this journey how unusual I was. Um, I thought that every practitioner uh, who saw the truth would be willing to step on and sign a document. And... Um, you know, speak publicly. Um, it's become, it, I've learned that it's much more difficult to get these signatures than I had originally thought it would be. So um, it'll probably happen this next year. That's what I would say. Um, in addition to that, I will add that I am already personally litigating. Uh, I filed a lawsuit uh, against my previous employer. Um, or at the a couple months back, we are poised to appeal, um, and I I'm also applying all of the types of things that are in our affidavit are are also in my case. Uh, there's um, so there's overlap, and when I win my case, that's a big part of this is that uh, people will see that yeah. we have won this. And, I, and this is what Chris, Dr. Christian Northrup keeps saying. She says, you know, at some point the, the dam is going to break and practitioners are just going to flood in because they're going to realize that they cannot hide, you know, behind the, the, the veil of, oh, I was doing what I was told. Exactly. So that time has not come yet, but I'm hopeful that it will come shortly. And so tell me a little bit about your, this website, Stand Firm Now. Yeah, so Stand Firm Now. So this, in addition to going around to conferences and gathering evidence, we also have a website. And anyone can go on the website and um, 
fill out an affidavit right on there. There's a tab um, up on uh, on the menu bar that shows um, steps that you can take. And if you click into there, I uh, yeah. So or let's under see. under the affidavit. The affidavit. Mm-hmm. Okay. And right there, so the four steps, and we walk you through it right here. So you can download the affidavit, fill it out, take it into your bank. They'll notarize it for free, or you can go to the UPS store and pay $10. Um, and then just bring it home, scan it, and upload it. Um, in addition to that, with you know being able to read through this at home, you can also see up there um, on the right next to the affidavit is all of our exhibits. So every single statement in this legal document is supported by between five and thirty-five um, exhibits, which are you know documentation proving that every statement we've made is true and correct. Uh, I will also say that we are always very excited to have more evidence. Uh, any practitioners or scientists who have data that we don't have, please um, offer us suggestions of how to improve the affidavit. Um, I've had multiple sit-down meetings with groups of practitioners where we've fine-tooth comb gone through the affidavit and improved the wording. Uh, to make it more precise. So these are things, like this is an evolving effort, it's an evolving document. If there's something in it that's not correct or that a practitioner doesn't like, they can change it, they can scratch it out, they can add pages of their own data. Like if they, like I've got doctors, you know, who worked in the ER for the last three years, I mean they've got thousands of patients and scenarios to add to their evidence. So those are all very helpful. They're extremely helpful. So then after you uh, get the document notarized, you just make a quick video of yourself holding the document, showing each page. It takes about one minute. And then if you scroll down on that page, you can just re-upload the evidence and send it to us online. And then we do need the hard copy of the affidavit. So, um, they're right there. If you stop right there, you can see, uh, send the file. There's a mailing address to um, our legal counsel to know that we have the hard copy of the data. And that's because, again, the courts like to mess us around. We'll give them the digital copy copies, but we also have to have the hard copies. And that's actually the purpose of the video as well. Because if we have a supporting video with the person holding the affidavit, the judge can't dispute the validity of that evidence. So that's really what all of this is, is we are trying to hit every single potential um, opportunity for the courts to uh, discredit our evidence by just proactively being very thorough about our data gathering. So it's a very simple um, action. It takes very little. And the impacts uh, would be profound if we get thousands of medical practitioners. I mean, this literally will apply to any COVID case anywhere in the world. So our legal team is going to insert this evidence into international jurisdiction. 
So it's not just the United States litigating attorneys. Uh, any attorney anywhere in the world will be able to use this as expert witness testimony. And because of the video, uh, there will be little to no need uh, for the judge or the courts to call on us as witnesses because we've already provided all of the proof that we are in fact who we say we are. So it's a pretty simple way to potentially make a very profound difference in the world. Well, you guys have definitely done your homework. That's for sure. Very, uh, you make it simple. Sim you make a complicated process simple. And that's what I like about it. Yeah, that's definitely the goal. I mean, it's very tough. Even with the this, this step of having to go to a notary, you know, that's why I like to go to events because a lot of times it's hard for people to take time out of their busy days. But I would definitely just say to encourage people you know, it will take a few minutes out of your day and it will take a little bit of your time. But, um, you know, that's kind of a good thing to just remember is like, well, how much bang for your buck are you going to get with this small bit of effort? And we could potentially change the world with it. So absolutely. We don't want this to happen again. So as we wrap this podcast up, uh, Gail, what do you have a passion for? My long-term goal is to participate in the development of a fully uh, new private and parallel healthcare structure. Uh, I would, um, I see a future where we are um, exercising our, um, our constitutional right to contract privately outside of the jurisdiction of the federal uh, government and the three-letter agencies that have regulated on us so profoundly during COVID. Um, that's really what I, what my takeaway has been from all of this is like, you know, if these entities and organizations are corrupt, how can we separate ourselves from them? And yeah. really that's with private parallel infrastructure. Absolutely. So um, I'm not really... When it comes down to the intricacies and details of how to implement um, the maintenance of ethical and moral medical care and treatment, that is really, I think, going to be one of the biggest challenges with this because we have to, we have to do more than just take an oath. You know, there needs to be oversight committees. Um, making sure that practitioners are practicing ethically because at the end of the day we are the only ones in between your family member and your loved ones and big government and big business and if we can't hold that line again I'll go back to you know what is the value in humanity how can we call ourselves civilized you know really this is it. We have to be able to separate the value of human life from, um, you know, monetary gain and the agendas of, you know, whoever these elite people are um, trying to make these rules that harm humanity. I agree 100%. And I think it's very difficult to practice in the traditional government-based insurance environment um, ethically. As a pharmacist, as a nurse, as a doctor, I think it's very hard to do it ethically. And the parallel system you're talking about, it already exists. 
In fact, our pharmacy, Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy, is in the parallel system. You know, we haven't built insurance for over 21 years now, and we are liberated from that system because we realized over 20 years ago what a scam it was. Right. You know, and there are doctors now that they're the same way. They do, they do not. The way to get out of the system is you can't bill insurance. If you bill insurance, right. you're going to be in the system and you're going to be controlled by the government. I don't care if you don't take, quote unquote, Medicare or Medicaid government insurance, because all insurance is controlled by the government. Premier Blue Cross, United Healthcare, all those companies are controlled by the federal government. They're told how much to pay for something and when to pay for something. So right. it's all based on CMS principles or reimbursement with diagnosis right. codes and, and CPT codes. And so I'm inviting you now, Ash, uh, Gail, to our Medical Freedom Northwest Conference in April, April 20th of next year in Spokane because we are specifically targeting how to set up a parallel system and it's going to be targeted towards nurses, pharmacists and doctors. We have the speakers already lined up um, and you should be there and you should talk about stand firm now and have people sign your affidavits too. Wonderful. Definitely I will. And in addition to that, I'll go one step further. My goal would be to connect us all. Because I think that's really the issue is that we have all of these people doing all of these things. But when it comes to full scope of care, the community is generally feeling like they cannot drop their insurance. Because if an emergency occurs or if they need something, and that's really what what I I find to, to need work is that we need to get connected under a... under an international organization where we can offer people the option to get full scope of care and completely release their insurance. So here's one of the things. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. It's already out there. They're called called health sharing ministries. And um, they take care of people all over the world. My wife and I have a health sharing ministry. We absolutely love it. We've had, we have two grown boys now, but when they were teenagers, both of them broke bones. One of them was a compound fracture of a tibia and um, it, it got covered, uh, you know, a $48,000 bill and it got covered way better than insurance would have covered it. It's a whole other story because I had to unfortunately go to a local hospital, which I think is evil and they over, yeah. they overbilled us. But with my other son, where it wasn't an emergency, we had some shopping and we went shopping and did not go local because we know how evil our local hospital is. Most hospitals are. So we shop for a cash price for his broken wrist. So those things are out there. They cover heart attacks. They cover cancers. There's no reason that we need to reinvent the wheel. We just need to educate people. That's what we're yeah. doing at the Freedom Northwest Conference. Wonderful. I look forward to that. Yeah. So we'll give you more information on it, um, but save the date. April Definitely 20th. will. Yeah. And and Gail, as always, um, I thank you for being on. You've been a wonderful guest. Our, our goal of this podcast is to educate and empower individuals to take charge of their own health. And you'd help us realize that goal today. So I thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Listeners and viewers, thank you for tuning in to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. We will see you Monday, our regularly scheduled podcast, 1230 to 130 Pacific Standard Time. Thank you for watching.